Love this podcast? Support this show through the Acast supporter feature. It's up to you how much you give, and there's no regular commitment. Just click the link in the show description to support now. What's up, what's up, what's up, what's up, y'all? This is Classified. This is Mocha Only. This is Sean Price. Yeah, Ghostface Killer. This is Quake Matthews. What's up, my brother Ali? Fight Diggy, Tribe Core Quest. Eloquent, man. What up, Styles Peter Ghost. This is Absol. This is K.O. And you listening to the Come Up Show, where that feel-good music lives. Hey. This is the show that you come up on, yeah. This is the spot that you come up strong. What's going on? Welcome to the Come Up Show podcast. Thank you for joining me. I'm Martin Bauman, and today I have the pleasure of speaking to one of my favorite producers in all of hip-hop. He was born and raised in San Diego. He reps the label Mellow Orange. And he's worked with everyone from Aloe Black to Blue to Joey Badass, earning props from the likes of Slum Village and Fonte along the way. It all began when he was just a teenager spinning records in his bedroom, teaching himself how to scratch. In his first ever DJ battle, he lost by default because he showed up a day late. He's come a long way since then, and after his 2012 album Fiberglass Kisses, he's back working on a new album and brushing up on his turntable skills along the way. My guest today is none other than Freddie Joachim. We talk about everything from crate digging to the keys to happiness to advice for up-and-coming artists and much more. Take a listen. Tell me a little bit about growing up in San Diego and what the music scene is like there. Well, I grew up in like kind of the late 80s, early 90s of hip-hop. So a lot of the stuff uh, that I kind of grew up on was like, you know, stuff that was played on MTV and on, on the radio, like A Tribe Called Quest and whatnot. Um, but in San Diego, the, the scene is like pretty small, and it continues to be really small. In high school, I kind of, I really gravitated towards uh, this group called The Sound Providers. They were out of San Diego, and they were a hip-hop trio at the time. And um, their, their style was, there was a lot of... Uh, jazz based samples and that's kind of the music that I wanted to make out of high school because at the time especially in San Diego there was no one making that type of music so that basically the sound providers were kind of like a big influence of me getting into production yeah let's talk about them what significance do they have and why was it that they stuck out to you amongst all the other music that was going on well like in the in Kind of like the mid-90s is when I got into DJing. And this was kind of at the same time that Ruckus was really big. And, you know, this is like when Most Def and Quali and like Common and The Roots were like really blowing up. Um, and, you know, that's the type of music that I, I kind of gravitated towards. And myself, along with a handful of other DJs in San Diego, were kind of spinning. But the sound providers, I don't know, it was... I think it was their sample choice. It was a, it was kind of, I don't want to say it was like campy kind of samples, but I would have to say all their, all their, their tracks were kind of, they, they took samples from a lot of like uh, jazz records, like Ma Jamal records and Herbie Hancock, a lot of pianists. And you know, I think that kind of growing up as a kid before I even got into music, that's the kind of music that I listen to generally or just kind of gravitated towards. Like a lot of like Tribe Called Quest and De La Soul, you know, they had a lot of like jazz samples. And then uh, the sound providers, when they came by like later on in, in my teens, that's the same type of sound that uh, I kind of gravitated towards. Now, would you have been seeing them performing live or was this just music that was circulating on the radio or how were you, uh, 
I guess, coming into contact with their music? Um, not They didn't really play that type of music on the radio in San Diego. It was also, there weren't too many hip-hop shows in general in San Diego, like uh, that where the sound providers were performing at at the time. I think it was mainly toward, when I got into DJing, a lot of the local record shops carried their music. So, you know, just out of a whim, I picked up uh, a few of their singles and then I, later on, I kind of just ended up following them. But, you know, I was too young to go check out hip-hop shows at the time. So I kind of just collected their records until I would, like, later hook up with their MCs, like, once I was, like, in my mid-20s. You know, me just being, like, kind of like a bedroom DJ at the time, uh, I, I, I mainly just collected music rather than actually going to shows. Uh, so you mentioned the mid-90s is kind of the time frame right here. You start DJing, you're a teenager. Uh, how much convincing did it take your dad to get you that first pair of turntables? It wasn't too much convincing, honestly. Like, my dad has been, like, incredibly supportive of, you know, like, the music stuff that I'm doing. So I remember the first or the day that I asked him or I begged him to get me some turntables. We went to this local kind of uh, music store not too far from our house, and then he bought me my first, like, DJ setup. Which was, uh, what, what, what did it have been exactly? Uh, it was it was these really basic Gemini turntables and a Gemini mixer. I remember it was like a Gemini six to six mixer. You can really do t- complicated scratching on it, <laughs> but I remember you can. It, it helped me learn how to mix music. Now, when you first would have started, did you ever give yourself a D? I know, like I know you go by Freddie Joachim, obviously, but did you ever give yourself a DJ name when you were first kind of getting into it? Yeah, yeah. Like when I first started DJing. I went by DJ Tilapia, and it, it was a joke at first. Like, I was just with my friends, or you know, maybe my sister at the time, and we were just thinking of DJ names, and then, and then Tilapia just kind of came up, and it, it was like kind of this ongoing joke that kind of stuck f- for like a few years, and then it, like, I got into the battle scene a little bit, the DJ battle scene, mm-hmm. and then that's kind of what I went by when I would enter battles. Speaking of kind of the California, uh, in the in the likes of the sound providers, one California influence, another one, what significance do the Invisible Scratch Pickles have to you? Oh, a big influence. I think, you know, for a long t- for a few years anyway, in my early DJ years, I just wanted to be like kind of a house party DJ. Uh, you know, I was in my late teens. I just want to be a house party DJ and uh, rock parties and then kind of get that money to invest in buying like you know lights and fog machines <laughs> and then uh, one of my friends who was actually a friend's older brother who was into scratching uh introduced me to the scratch pickles and once i saw a video of them that's basically what i wanted to do <laughs> like it was a huge influence of me getting into kind of like turntablism and then after kind of digging for records for a while and then watching, you know, scratch pickle videos, I would uh, just kind of eventually like steer into another direction of DJing. So that's how I got into like battle DJs, being a battle DJ and stuff like that. What were the first kind of records that you were picking up when you were getting into digging and and DJing? Uh, What were the things that you immediately sort of gravitated towards? When I first started DJing, I would just basically pick up party records. But then I would also pick up kind of break compilations and that would kind of educate me a little bit on 
you know, breaks and kind of like famous kind of samples and stuff like that. And then I would pick up uh, some of my favorite hip hop records. And on the back at the time, it would include sample credits. And I I remember reading the liner notes and it would say like something like it contains a sample from this record. So in in turn, I would buy those hip hop records, but then I would buy kind of the the original compositions from the samples too. Speaking of that, actually, this is a quote, I believe I read this on one of your interviews or something like that, but you said it wasn't until you were a teenager that you found out that some of your favorite hip hop songs came from uh, jazz records. Uh, Do you remember any of those earlier records when you made this discovery? I think it was kind of like some classic kind of hip hop records. I I remember, you know, I was a big far side listener uh, growing up as a kid. I remember, I remember Lab Cabin California and Dilla produced like a few songs of that. But I remember a few of the joints off there that I would kind of get into the original stuff. And then of course, you know, I was a big Tribe Called Quest fan growing up. So a lot of their samples that they use, I would eventually kind of learn and educate myself on the originals. And I, I think when, when you do that, when you kind of learn about the original samples, uh, especially at a young age like that, you kind of start following, you know, jazz records or jazz artists. Like, for instance, you know, I would pick up like some classic hip hop joint and it would contain, you know, like a sample off a George, like Benson record. So I would kind of do research on George Benson and find out what else, what other hip hop songs that he was on that uh, our hip hop artists sampled him. And then, I would do the same with like other hip hop artists and other jazz artists. Is there one particular record in your collection that sticks out as being uh, the most significant for you? Uh, I'm not too sure. I think, you know, growing up, uh, my dad didn't really have too many jazz records. Um, he he was a big, uh, he's a trumpet player, so he had a uh, he had a few Maynard Ferguson records that I acquired that I kind of like and then he he actually had this Dave Brubeck record I think it was the Time In record it was the record that came out after Time Out and I still have that one and I remember listening to that record all the time before I even got into DJing I remember playing that record because I had a few drum breaks on it too and I remember playing that record while watching skate videos (laughs) So, yeah, yeah. So I would play like these records, like these jazz records on top of skate videos. But other than that, like I, I you know, like I always uh, wanted to collect, you know, like the Bob James series and a few Herbie Hancock records. Were you a skateboarder at all, at all growing up or just a fan? I, I, I got into skateboarding like maybe when I was 13. And then I kind of skated from like middle school through a little bit of high school. And I still kind of follow s- skating here and there, but I can't really skate anymore. <laughs> was it a mode of transportation, or were you getting into tricks and stuff like that, too? No, I was, I was super into it. I, I was getting into tricks and, you know, going to, like, demos to watch my favorite skaters and, you know, begging my even my parents to buy me skateboard parts. But, yeah, yeah, it was... Um, it, I think at the time, skateboarding wasn't huge at the time, like, in, in kind of like the early 90s. I mean... It was definitely like a lot of people were doing it, but not how it is, how skateboarding is now. 
But yeah, yeah, I, I remember uh, uh, being like a 13 year old and then coming home from school and just like skating all day and then skating all summer. <laughs> uh, you mentioned your dad, some of the records that you, you got from him. What other music was in the household as you were growing up? Well, my dad, he kind of has this real eclectic taste in music. Uh, I think the only things he doesn't listen to are country and hip hop. But he listens to a lot of like Celtic music. And then we were, as kids, me and my sister were kind of forced to listen to classical music in the car. And my mom, uh, she was kind of like a disco queen in her heyday. So she liked a lot of like kind of disco hits and like she listened to ABBA and a few other kind of cheesy random disco things. Yeah. Another piece of San Diego trivia I want to ask you about. Tell me about uh, the time you met Tony Gwynn. I met him a couple times. I, um, I remember meeting him when I was like a really little kid, like maybe five or six years old, and him autographing a hat for me, which was super cool. And then I, I would meet him a couple times later. I remember meeting him when I was like 11 or 12. The cool thing about, um, you know, like sporting events, you know, Padres and stuff like that, um, they would have like fan days where you can come out to the field and kind of meet all the players. And, you know, like... Uh, my family household, we were big Padres fans. So my dad had season tickets like for a really long time. But yeah, yeah, he's a cool. Like Tony Gwen did a lot for, you know, not just baseball, but he did a lot for um, the city of San Diego. Do you still follow the team at all or, or has that kind of subsided by now? I still go to games, but I, I can't say that I follow them any sports to like a T. <laughs> like I'm just too consumed with other things, but yeah, you know, like I'll forever be a Padres fan, like till I die. But and I'll still continue to go watch baseball games. But I can't say that I'm like super uh, informative of what's going on. Going back to talking about DJing a little bit, we've we've heard the story, or we've se- I've I've seen the video you talking about your first quote unquote DJ battle, the one that didn't end up happening or the one that you arrived late for. But what about the story of your first real DJ battle? Uh, the first real DJ battle was a Guitar Center battle. And I was living in Long Beach in LA at the time. And um, I remember going... Basically, I couldn't battle in San Diego because I knew all the DJs in San Diego. And they were I already knew they were all too good. <laughs> And it, and I couldn't battle uh, within L.A. because, you know, all the DJs in L.A. were really good at the time. So what I did was I entered a Guitar Center battle in the O.C. in Orange County. And I remember, you know, practicing my routines up to the battle and everything. And then actually going to battle and then just being blown away by the other DJs. <laughs> my My routines weren't as like constructed as theirs i kind of went up there did did a beat juggle and did some scratching but everybody else's routines were just kind of like you can tell that they they didn't sleep they (laughs) they basically practiced their routines like day and night but then other than that like i think that that first battle kind of left a bad taste in my mouth because of the politics involved uh maybe it was just the judging because even though you know, I didn't really place in that battle. I'm, I think I placed like fourth or fifth. I feel like some other DJs should have won it, but it was kind of like the judges 
I feel didn't really understand what was going on. So they picked uh, somebody else. What what do you see yourself as first? Are you a producer first, DJ second, or is it vice versa for you? I think it kind of flip-flops now and then. Right now, I feel like I'm really into DJing at the moment. And then producing is kind of like a second thing. But overall, I think I'm a producer. Like, I, you know, I think that's where I kind of shine a little bit more. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think that's where my, my, my strong points are at, being a producer, as opposed to being a DJ. You know, like I re- it's something I really still love doing, and I'll continue to always DJ. But, um, but yeah, I, I kind of see myself more as a, a producer right now. Since we are a Canadian blog, The Come Up Show, I want to ask about two Canadian connections, both of them producers, actually. Uh, how did you first connect with Moonshine in Slack of the Beat Child? Well, um, I'll talk about Slack. Actually, I don't know Slacka. I just kind of, we would just kind of tweet each other here and there. <laughs> okay. I did a remix of one of his songs that I heard off SoundCloud, and then it got some play, and then that <laughs> that's when he kind of hit me up, and he was like, I think he, 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 he was like, I'll send you stems, but it never happened. Uh. <laughs> <laughs> but um, Moonshine, um, I actually met, met him a long time ago, like maybe 2005 or something like that. And he was working on one of his albums at the time. And I produced, I think I produced one or, one or two tracks or a remix off that one. And then... I had him featured on my first album, which was In With Time. And then since then, we've just been kind of like working on stuff here and there. Tell me, uh, tell me a bit about the origin of the, the label Mellow Orange. Uh, Mellow Orange was actually started by my partner, Yusai. And he's based out of San Francisco. And he was actually just using the, the name Mellow Orange as kind of like... I guess a crew name at the time and he was just using it to kind of put out his own mixtapes and then it wasn't until maybe about 2000 early 2009 maybe late 2008 where I was kind of helping him put together a compilation for another buddy of ours out of Japan so I was I'm, I think I produced one or two tracks off of it and then uh, shortly after that, he asked me to help put together another compilation for, for Mellow Orange for its first release. So I produced like half of the compilation featuring different artists. And then after that, you know, I told him basically like we should just kind of start this label and see what, what happens. So we released the compilation in 2009, uh, late 2009. And then we released my album, which was the first kind of uh, official artist release, which was Midway in 2010. Was that 2010? Yeah, 2010. And then since then, we've just been kind of uh, releasing my stuff along with uh, a handful of other artists. How do you feel about the sort of the, I guess, the breakdown of a label like Mellow Orange versus a major label? And what are the pros or cons to the way that you're doing uh, releasing music? Um. I guess one thing I enjoy about it is we're able to release the music that we just generally like. 
and we're, we're able to connect with other indie artists that we kind of are fans of and who actually want to release with us as well. You know, like major labels and indie labels, they're, you know, they're, it's kind of night and day in a, in a sense. Of course, you know, we don't impact the masses as, as far as like major labels go. But the cool thing about running a label nowadays or even just being like a producer or musician is, you know, with the big social boom and the internet, we're able to connect with everybody across the globe, which was kind of like a little bit unheard of, like, you know, 20 years ago. But yeah, yeah, you know, like the cool thing about it is, um, you know, like I said, we're just able to just pump out music that we want to pump out. And I, I feel like we're we're not really trying to we're definitely not trying to compete with other labels, even other indie labels. We're still trying to, like, I guess, not really have a definitive sound because we, we really like the new stuff coming out, but we still kind of uphold, like, our old kind of styles. Because we, the majority of us on Mellow Orange, we kind of grew up in, like, the, the early 90s kind of hip-hop, so that's kind of... Are one of our main influences, but we we definitely don't we're not like purists or anything like that. So uh, we definitely don't shy away from like new music being produced. I want to ask you about a couple tweets of yours. Uh, I'll start with this one uh, relating to the kind of music that you're making. You say I'm trying to make intelligent music. How would <laughs> how would you describe that? Let me. <laughs> um. I think for me personally, as, as the, the music that I produce, I think I just want to make music that, you know, I don't make like party music, you know, I don't make like music that most people dance to or anything <laughs> like that. I, I think I kind of want to make music that will have the listener kind of sit down and kind of reflect on whatever it is that they kind of want to reflect on that, you know, like music that makes you kind of think about things in general. Mm -hmm. So I guess that's kind of what I meant when I say I want to make intelligent music. And, you know, like a lot of my stuff is like jazz sample based. So I think part of that is learning the history of music or learning the history of the samples that I'm using and then kind of conveying it into my own music. All right, here's a, another tweet of yours. You say, uh, don't rap over other people's beats, then try and put it up on iTunes for sale. Uh, producers, keep an eye on your stuff. Is this something that, uh, was this inspired by or, or provoked by a scenario that happened to you here? And, and tell me the story, if so. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so, you know, I'm not going to get into the specifics of it, only because I don't want to call out, like, these artists. But some people have, you know, I, I don't have a problem with people like rapping over my stuff or, you know, whatever they want to do over it. And then, you know, just kind of releasing it for people to listen to for free. You know, it's fine. You know, I, I release music for free all the time. I mean, it's going to happen. But, you know, like when you take a handful of my beats and then you put it on like a mixtape or an album and then you put it up for sale on like a store without even consulting me about it or even having my permission to do it then it, you know, you, you have to kind of like regulate on that stuff. But it has happened. Uh, another, one more tweet in, in sort of in the same vein as this, but you say, 
you have to invest in your own projects. Stop buying shoes and other BS. Use that money for your <laughs> album. Uh, this, this is very. This is a, a stream of tweets in a row. But uh, <laughs> the gist is, you know, respect the game. Uh, it's you know, it's easier now, yes. But some artists help build it, and they still go above and beyond, and still continue to contribute. Tell me a little bit about uh, the the sentiment you're trying to get at here. Yeah, I think it, it's just, you know, I see uh, certain artists, and they're kind of bigging themselves up and you know saying that they're doing all this stuff which is fine you know especially for a young artist but i feel like you know for rappers especially you know they make these they make countless mixtapes when i feel they should be focusing on creating like a full legit kind of album and that entails like actually contacting producers or working with producers on the album you know, it's something very specific to who they are as an artist. And, you know, like, I see, <laughs> I see, you know, some people trying to start, like, Kickstarters to fund their album. And then the next thing you know, they're posting something on Instagram that they bought, like, some new Jordans. And it's like, <laughs> you know, it's kind of like, you know, like, what are you doing, you know? But, yes. yeah, that's just the gist of it. You know, it's just, you have to kind of... If you're if you want people to kind of take you seriously as an artist, you have to kind of respect the process of making, you know, like an album. If you might offer up one piece of advice to uh, whether they be rappers or producers, uh, somebody coming up, what would that piece of advice be? Uh, I don't know. I, I guess just, you know, I think one thing that's important to me, say if I was like a young up and coming producer or an artist, is kind of, I guess, just learning the history of music. I mean, learning how, just learning everything about what you want to get into. You know, it's so easy to kind of pick up a mic and, you know, rap over something. But I feel like if the content isn't, isn't, uh, isn't good or like the content isn't something for me to even like comprehend or even think about, then it's just kind of noise in a, in a sense. Um, and then, you know, I guess you have to kind of set yourself apart from a lot of other artists. You know, there's a million producers out there. There's a million rappers out there. Um, I guess you have to kind of find a way to kind of, I guess, convey who you are that's different from the next person. I'm not saying you should try to upstage or, like, be more crazier than the next person or anything like that but you know just kind of show who you like who you really are i feel like a lot of people kind of put up this front like they're not you know who they really are as artists and i think it's important to kind of stay true to yourself and be humble and stuff that's one thing i you know like i understand being a young kind of artist and being easily influenced by mainstream media and how music is so it's so easy to make it big in music right now, like how quick it is. But things do take time. Some people make it overnight, in a sense. And then other people, it takes them years, you know? You have to kind of like hone your craft, I guess. If I might broaden that question to uh, lessons learned beyond just the scope of music, what is the greatest life lesson that you've learned, or at least one that has stuck out to you uh, at this particular moment? Life lesson? Um, this, 
<laughs> it sounds really cliche, but like, I guess just do what you love. And I mean that meaning like you only really have, for most people, you only have one life. And you might as well try and make the effort to do something you absolutely love doing. And then, you know, that leads to you being happy with it, you know, throughout your whole life. It, it's regardless of if it's music or whatever. I mean, you can't be just miserable behind a desk like the rest of your life. And if you, it, you know, I understand people have like their nine to fives to help them get through the day and they have other things going on, families and stuff. But just always make time for something that you love. Looking ahead, what is next for you or what do you still want to do that you have not done yet? Well, right now, I'm just kind of slowly working on a new album that's probably going to be released sometime next year. Uh, but other than that, I'm just mainly focused on the label. Uh, we're gearing up to release um, uh, this producer out of Detroit named Hero. And he's, uh, he's kind of a good balance of kind of like the future type of sound, the future music that's being kind of, that's pretty popular right now and kind of like the classic kind of hip hop stuff. So I think he fits really well in the label. Um, other than that, the things I want to do is I, I definitely want to perform more. So that's why I've been kind of like practicing my DJ and live performance game a little bit more. And, you know, I just want to perform, you know, in, in other cities around the world. Thank you. I appreciate your time. Uh, and uh, yeah, best of luck to you in the future. All right, dude. Thanks, man. All right. Peace. Peace. Well, there you have it. If you want to know more about Freddie Joachim, you can go to thecomeupshow.com. We've got lots of music to check out there. If you enjoyed the show, help us out. Subscribe on iTunes. Follow us on SoundCloud. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram, too, at The Come Up Show. If you're in London, make your way to the APK on September 4th for Dirty Thursdays. Danny O's performing. And it's also the second anniversary show of a good friend of ours at the Consignment Show. And for our Toronto fam, and for anyone within driving distance of Toronto, the 8th Annual Manifesto Festival is coming up. It runs from September 18th to 21st. You do not want to miss it. That's it for this week. Hope you enjoy the show. Once again, I'm Martin Bauman. Thank you for listening. We'll see you next time. (laughs) 